Well, good morning. Okay, let's just go ahead and get at this out of the way. We know what today is, right? Super Bowl Sunday. Everybody picks a team. Doesn't matter if you're a sports fan or not a sports fan. It just seems like it's the thing to do in America. So let's do it right now. On the count of three, I don't care if you're at the North Campus, your online family, part of the South Campus. I want everybody just to shout out who they think is going to win the Super Bowl. Ready? One, two, three. See, all of you got it wrong. The answer is not the Cowboys. There's an old joke I tell probably every four years. A man put in his will that he wanted the Dallas Cowboys to be his pallbearers. His wife asked him why. He said, I just want them to let me down one more time. <laughs> yeah, you can use that. It's free of charge. <clears throat> man, it's good to be with you guys today. You know, there was a, something I read the other day that's utterly world-changing. It's kind of one of those staggering things <clears throat> that's going to make you think, hey, once I tell it to you, you're probably going to think we've had enough. You can leave, right? It's just going to be that much. You ready? Scientists have recently discovered that a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. I know. Now think about that. Someone with a brilliant enough mind to be a scientist decided the thing I need to spend my time and my money on is to find out how long a goldfish can pay attention to something. I'm sure that they can tell me, somebody will probably send me information on why that information is important for the betterment of our world. But for the life of me, I can't figure it out. I didn't read the article because of the goldfish. I read it because it was comparing the attention span of a goldfish to that of a 2022 human being. And those same scientists say that the average attention span of a human today is eight seconds. Turn to your neighbor and make sure they're still paying attention, okay? Let's see what's going on here. Yeah. Now, I can't prove or disprove the eight-second rule or anything like that, but let's be honest. We all know our attention span is decreasing, right? We're all having more and more trouble paying attention. Media knows it's the case. Just, if you don't believe me, watch a sitcom from the 1980s maybe early 1990s, and ask yourself the question, how often do they change camera views? And it's in the 15 to 30 second category. Now, today, the average is three to four seconds. I mean, we at Beltway Park do it. Just to be able to do that, we um, magnify our image, we put it on the screen with North Campus. We, we change camera views often. See, it's got everybody's attention right now. If we just did that, we'd be great. Come on, we know that just the reality of our world right now, there's so much information coming at us, and we feel like we got to keep up with it. And so everything gets to be quick and surface level. And to be honest with you, we're being entertained a lot. You know, we have tweets that go 140 to 280 characters. We have short Instagram. They tell you on social media, if you do anything more than about a minute long, nobody's going to watch it. Or what they're going to do is they're going to put it away for later with intention of watching it, but they never watch it, right? Because that is reality. Everything's quick. Everything's surface level. And maybe that's okay if you're talking about the intention span of a goldfish. But what about the real issues of life? I'm talking about the deep issues. I'm talking about faith issues in our life. I'm going to challenge that we can't afford just to be quick and service level. And that's why I'm so proud of you because we're doing a sermon series that's not quick and it's not surface level. 
We're talking about hard questions. And when you get finished with the message, you're probably thinking, you're probably chewing on it, and you're probably thinking, he could have said a lot more about that than he said. You can go to our podcast, and you can hear our team following up on it. And there's still more stuff that we can dive into on that. I am so proud of you because you are engaging in that. But at the same time, if we're not careful, here's what we can think. We can think this is irrelevant to our Monday through Saturday life. But I want you to know it's just the opposite. It's true. Many of you know that we as a church have been blessed to purchase a property in the Brook Hollow neighborhood of Abilene. For many decades, it was a place of gospel ministry by a great church called Brook Hollow Christian Church. We purchased that facility recently wanting to continue the legacy of gospel ministry in that place. We're going to do something different there. We're going to turn that space into a twofold use because of the needs in our community. One, we're going to open up a, a daycare that prioritizes people in low socioeconomic situations and maybe the first one in town has spots for foster care kids when they come into the system so we can keep our kids in Abilene. Yeah, you can clap when I come ask you for money to make that happen um, later on. Yeah, don't laugh too hard. It's going to happen, but that's part of who we are, right? The second thing we're going to do is have a counseling center. The counseling center is focused on children and teens, again, with the priority to foster care who've had to walk through the trauma and the secondary traumas of what they've gone through in life. That is our dream. Now, I know it's difficult for you to understand, believe this, but I like to move fast in life. Like everything should be done yesterday. That's just my mindset. So as soon as we signed the papers on the building, I was ready to go. Let's slap on a coat of paint. Let's put some new flooring down, maybe put up some little wall hangings. Let's get some kids in there. Let's do this thing. Let's get moving. But those who actually know something about buildings looked at me and said, hey, slow up there, Tex. We've got an opportunity here. I said, yeah, we've got an opportunity to do ministry. They said, no, this building is like five to seven decades old. It's been doing its thing for 50 to 70 years, and when buildings have had to exist that long, sometimes they have weaknesses. Sometimes things have developed in places that you can't see, like in the walls, in the structure, in the foundation. And we have an opportunity here, if we'll just take a little while longer, we can strip away the exterior, and we can look at the structure, and we can look at the foundation. And if there's any weaknesses, we can actually repair those right now. And we can make this building as strong as it was when it was new. And that way, with everything we put into it, it's going to be able to accomplish as a tool for gospel ministry for the next five to seven decades. If we'll just take a few weeks right here to look at the foundation and the structure. And as much as I wanted to, I couldn't argue with that kind of wisdom. Well, in the same way, the issues we're addressing right now are just like that. It's like we're going beyond the surface and we're going a little bit deep. It's like we're looking at the bones of our faith, the structure, the foundation. And you can wonder, well, why are we going to do that? Because when the storms of life come, hear me, they're coming. See, if the pandemic has done anything, it has eroded the illusion that the world's not going to have trouble. The pandemic should have convinced us by now that science can't solve everything, that humanity doesn't have enough intellect, doesn't have enough brains to deal with everything that's going to come our way. We know from the pandemic trouble is going to come our way. It's not if, it's just when. But when the difficulties of life come, come on, how many of you want a solid foundation in life? Stick your hands up right now. See, we're all here at some level, we want that. And so we have to go deep and we have to look at those issues. And maybe the most common question I get, the thing that I hear people struggle with the most, believe it or not, is this. Can I really trust the Bible? People will ask, isn't the Bible just a bunch of legends? 
like a bunch of myths made up by unenlightened people. See, I'm not, I'm not saying that negatively about them. They just didn't know what we know today. They didn't have science and all that stuff to explain the world. So it's a bunch of unenlightened people trying to make sense of the world. We now understand because of science. Now, I understand even as I ask that question, something's bristling inside of you. Something's probably going, no, 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 we believe the Bible's the word of God. We believe the Bible was written by God. Yes, he used human authors. Yes, he used their personalities. But we know God made sure every word in the Bible is the word that he wanted. Amen? But if I ask you why, why do you believe that? What would we say? You say, well, David, we, we, we believe. But I'm just telling you when life gets tough, I've seen it throughout the pandemic. I've seen the struggles people all of a sudden had who would have two years earlier said they would have no problem with the Word of God. If I ask people why it is that we believe the Bible's Word of God, this is what I get. Well, I was taught my entire life the Bible's God's Word. And if you have that privilege, you ought to be thankful that you had that. But let's acknowledge something. Just because you were taught something for the entirety of your life doesn't automatically make it true, right? Like growing up, much to the disgust of my mother, my dad would do something. He would throw out a finger and say, son, you want to pull my finger? And I believe for the longest time there was a cause-effect relationship between the pulling of his finger and that which was about to transpire that I knew was going to make me as a little boy laugh. And let's be honest, it still makes the big boys laugh too, right? It wasn't true. Far more significant than that. We are part of a worldwide movement. We're part of the church of Jesus and part of the cause of the Jesus. Uh, church of Jesus as we go into all the world to share the gospel. So we have over 90 ministry partners and they are in the places of the world where people grew up believing that Judaism was right. They grew up believing Hinduism was right. They grew up being taught that Buddhism was right. They grew up being taught that Islam was right. And our partners, our, our ministry partners are going in those places and they're, they're saying, well, just because you grew up being taught something was true does not automatically mean that was true. Well, we agree with that, but we have to acknowledge the same for ourselves. Just because you were taught something doesn't make it automatically true. We have to go a little deeper than that. Or we say, well, I feel good about the Bible. Well, I mean, I feel good about chocolate. It doesn't mean you ought to center your life around it, right? More significantly, the scripture itself says, there is a way that seems right to a person. There's a way that feels right. It feels good, but in the end, it leads to death. It leads to destruction in life. There are many things in life that initially start out feeling good and pleasurable, but they end up in destruction. By the way, in the margin of your notes, you can just write the word sin by that statement. Because almost everything about sin starts out feeling good and pleasurable. That's what the scripture indicates here. we got to go deeper than that. Now we also have to say, I have faith that I believe the Bible is God's word. I believe. Here's the question. Does the existence of faith automatically create truth? See, I think we have to acknowledge that we can truly believe in that which is false. Suicide terrorists of radical Islam believe they will be rewarded for their sacrifice of martyrdom, 70 virgins in heaven at their beck and call. They are going to be extremely surprised when they get on the other side. But they sincerely believe that reality. Guys, I'm not saying faith is unimportant. I'm just saying we can go deeper than that. Or we say, well, the scripture and what it reveals changed my life. Two decades ago, I was in Hollywood, California on a short-term mission trip. So actually, you've got to go on one of our trips. 
You got to be a part of what God's doing. I know you'll tend to think, well, I don't really have that much to offer to the people that are out there. Well, believe it or not, just showing up is a radical source of encouragement to our partners who are out there. But I'm going to tell you, even more than that, there's going to be something God does in your life. I've seen it again and again and again. It is worth the commitment of your time, money, all that you have to do to make that happen. I was with a group of youth. We were in Hollywood, California on Holloway Boulevard, and one on our one of our breaks, I went to a place that was offering free personality tests. Listen to me. It wasn't to see if I had a personality. It wasn't to see if it was good or bad. Just what kind of personality I had. Now, I knew everything. I didn't know everything. I knew a lot about this group already. I knew what I was getting into. I just wanted to see their process. So I took my personality test, and as I waited for the results of my personality test, they had live testimonies and video testimonies of people that you would recognize, people like Tom Cruise, who were saying what Scientology and a guy named L. Ron Hubbard had meant to their life. They were given testimonies of how it had changed their life. But their testimony doesn't make Scientology true or right. Are you hearing me? Now, don't mishear me and say that faith is unimportant. It's absolutely important. I'm not saying we shouldn't teach our children the word of God. We do that. That's why we partner with parents so ferociously in our children's ministry because we want to see our children grounded in the word of God and in the ways of God revealed in the word of God. We should have incredible experiences that we testify to in our groups. We testify to people in our workplace that validate scripture. But we also need to know another reality. When life gets tough, and it will get tough, or when we hear a skeptic's question about the Bible, or scripture challenges what is normative for my life. That, by the way, is why a lot of us struggle with getting into the scripture. It's not that we don't have the ability to understand it, it's that it challenges where we are. Or when it goes countercultural, we need to go somewhere deeper. And it's not just true of us, it was actually true of first century followers of Jesus. Put yourself in their place for a minute. It's almost impossible for us to do. When you decided to follow Jesus in the first century, we're talking about the years after Jesus' resurrection, so the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s AD. And you said, I'm going to follow Jesus. There was a cost. That cost might mean that you suffered severe economic difficulty. You might not be able to do business. Your business might be boycotted. It might be canceled. But beyond that, you might have physical persecution, meaning people would attack you and they would beat you. It is likely that in every group of Jesus followers, there are people that you knew that once existed in this life that no longer existed. They had been put to death at the hands of other people. They had been made martyrs for their faith for no other reason than they followed Jesus. I mean, with all that's going on in our culture, it's really, really difficult for us to grasp the idea of being persecuted for no other reason than following Jesus. But that was the norm. Peter, that apostle who looked like an idiot in the Gospels, becomes a stellar figure by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he writes to these early followers of Jesus in his letters that we know as first and second Peter. And he asked a question they were asking, which is, Peter, we have centered our lives on Jesus as revealed in the scripture. We believe that he is the Messiah. We believe he's the savior of the world. And it's costing us a great deal. Can we trust the Bible, Peter? Can we trust what it says? Because I'm telling you, we are going through a lot in this. Can I trust that the scripture is true and that what it says about Jesus is true? Can I trust the Bible enough to know, is this worth it? And Peter responds, 2 Peter 1, For we did not follow clever, devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were, notice the word here, eyewitnesses. Say eyewitnesses. 
It's a big word here. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Anybody remember when this was? It was both when he was baptized and when he was transfigured on the mountain. When this happened, Peter said, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him. We saw him on the mountain. What Peter is telling us is the New Testament can be trusted because it was written by eyewitnesses. Every New Testament book goes back to an apostle. And what Peter is saying is, I was there. Everything I told you about, I, I saw. I'm suffering just like you are. Maybe as an apostle, I'm suffering more than you are. And I can tell you, it happened. It is worth it. He is worth everything, even our lives. You see, there is today perpetuated a thought that's been going around for 2,000 years. And that thought is this, that everything about the New Testament's made up. That basically either the apostles made up a religion because they wanted to be the leaders of that religion. Or some have said it wasn't the apostles, but it was some other government leader. Like the most well-known goes back to a book in a movie by the same title called The Da Vinci Code. Maybe you've seen it. Tom Hanks starred in it. He's a great actor, things such as that. But in the Da Vinci Code, the basic idea was that the gospel is not a recording of things that actually happened, but it's actually the creation of an emperor by the name of Constantine, this guy that existed 300 or so years after the time of Christ. And Constantine was trying to keep uh, together his power as emperor of the Roman Empire, and things were shifting. And so he took these legends, these myths about a Jewish guy named Jesus, and he highlighted them. He he twisted them, he made some things up, and he turned Christianity into this religion that he created and made it the official religion of the Roman Empire. In essence, Jesus was created, and the idea of Christianity was created to support power. So it's either one of the apostles made it up so they could create their own religion, they could be leaders of, or a Roman emperor made it, or somebody else to do power. Here are the problems with this, the two big ones. One, the content of the New Testament is too counterproductive to be legend. Here's what I'm saying. If you're making up a religion, you don't write the things that are in the New Testament. Like, if you're the apostles, and you're making up a religion where you're the leader, where you're the star, do you look like you look in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the apostles look like idiots. It's like the three stooges a lot of times, right? Jesus is always having to correct them and things like that. You don't, you don't do that. If you are making up a religion for the Roman Empire, first century, second century, third century, it matters not. You don't make women the heroes of your story. Go back and read the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. No doubt the apostles are the one that struggles. Women are the ones that have faith. They're the heroines of the story. Now you're thinking, well, that, that's not a big deal because you're not thinking like somebody in the first, second, or third century. In first, second, or third century Roman Empire, women were second-class citizens. Definitely. Like, a woman was considered to be too emotional. Sorry, ladies. Too unstable to be able to be trusted, be a witness in the court of law. So isn't it interesting that it was illegal for a woman to give testimony, eyewitness account in a court of law, and the first person recorded to see the resurrected Jesus was who? Mary of Magdala. Not just a woman, but a woman with a shady past. Come on. The Gospels are clear that Jesus had in his group that were traveling together. If you've watched The Chosen, you've seen it. He not only had men, but he also had women. Go read Luke 8, 
sometime. And what you're going to find is not only were women traveling with him, they were the ones that were financing his trip. There were women who had wealthy means, and I'm assuming from past husbands, past families, something, they had means of finances, and they were supporting Jesus and the apostles in their ministry. You know what would have been said about Jesus in that day, right? Jesus had sugar mamas. Right? I'm not saying that crass. I'm just saying if you're making up a religion, you don't put stuff like that in the book. You don't have your hero, Jesus, struggling with his call in the Garden of Gethsemane. You don't have him crying out, God, is there another way? And I want you to listen to me. You don't have him dying on a cross if you're making it up. The most offensive thing in the Roman Empire was to have somebody die on the cross. That's why the Apostle Paul said for Jews, they demand signs. Greeks, Gentiles, they seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and Absurdity, foolishness, stupidity to Gentiles. Listen, if you're creating a religion, go deep here, stick with me. You don't have the central, most crucial event of your religion be the thing all of society are going to struggle with the most. It makes no sense to do that. You add to the fact that the things in the Gospels don't make sense for anything for anyone to make up. I'm just telling you the message was too costly to be made up. You read the New Testament. Every apostle suffered They were persecuted. They were tortured. Tradition tells us of the 12 apostles, 11 of them died a martyr's death. That means that they were at a place where they were tortured and most of them given an opportunity to recant their faith. All they had to say was, no, we don't believe Jesus died on the cross. I've been making it up. He didn't raise from the grave. I've been making it up. And they live. And yet not one of them recanted their faith. Now, really press in here, because you could be thinking, well, throughout history, people have died for what they have believed in. We talked about the suicide bombers. They died because they believe so deeply that they're going to receive the reward of the 70 virgins when they make a martyr sacrifice to Allah that they're willing to do that. But there's a difference between them and the apostles. There's one event. It is central to everything in the book. Everything in the Bible, everything in Christianity rises and falls on an empty grave. If the grave wasn't empty, we are fools for being here. The Bible itself says that. We are beyond stupid to give our lives to it because our faith means nothing. So think about this. When it comes to the central event of our faith, 12 men knew whether it happened or it didn't happen. They either saw it or they didn't. They either knew it was a lie or they knew that it was real. So listen to me. Do you think men and women will suffer torture for that which they know is a lie? I mean, people will lie to each other. No doubt we will lie to get ahead. We will lie for fame. We will lie for power. We will lie for money. We will lie for a lot of things. You start doing some of the things that they did to the early followers of Jesus. Do I need to go through that? Think about elements of torture in your life. You do a little bit of that to me, and I know it's a lie. I'm going, it's a lie. Not a one of them bowed. Not a one of them recanted. They were tortured. They were beaten. According to the book of Acts, they were beaten with whips like Jesus, sent on their way, and they went away rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer like Jesus suffered. Do you do that 
if you didn't see him? See, when it comes to the choice of life or death, I don't think anybody will die. I don't think anybody will be tortured for that which they know is a lie. See, all 12 of them saw, and they were willing to give their lives as eyewitnesses of what they saw. You add to it, according to 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 people actually saw the resurrected Jesus, and many of them died for that which they saw. See, what Peter wrote is very clear. What he wrote to the early followers of Jesus, what he shouts to you and I, is that what's in the New Testament is based upon what he saw. But that's not all he said. He goes on. And we have the prophetic word. Catch this. We have words of prophecy more fully confirmed. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke... From God. Prophecies not of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, the second thing Peter says, he challenges us. The ultimate author of Scripture is God. And the fulfilled prophecies are the evidence of God's authorship. At least 40 men over a period of 1,500 years were used to write the Bible. In what we call the Old Testament, there are at least 50 direct messianic prophecies. Now, some of you who've been around Scripture say, hey, I've heard there's over 300. Scholars actually debate the number of messianic prophecies versus the direct references to the Messiah. Some scholars say there's 300 prophecies. Others say there's 50 and another 250 direct prophecies. For our sake, it doesn't matter. We'll go with the low number. There's over 50 of them scattered out over the course of hundreds of years. Like the most famous of prophecies, at Christmas time we always say, and the virgin will be with child, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Do you know when that prophecy was given? By Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. We know the historicity of the Bible. We know when these books were written, and it was given at 700 years. That was one. What are the odds that one man could fulfill over 50 prophecies given over the course of millennia. One mathematician did a study, and he calculated the odds of Jesus fulfilling not 50, but eight. Say eight. Just eight. And he said Jesus fulfilling simply eight messianic prophecies, not over 50, would be one times 10 to the 17th power. How big is that number? You don't know, do you? I can't imagine. I'll tell you this. It's bigger than the national debt. Ooh, right? Getting personal there. It's one times 10 with 17 zeros behind it. To give you a picture. Let's say we had enough silver dollars that we could cover the land mass of the great state of Texas. Not only could we cover the land mass, we could cover the land mass two feet deep. All the way across. Before we put out any of our silver dollars that could cover the great state of Texas two feet deep, we put a Sharpie mark on one of them. We mixed it in, and we just scattered silver dollars all over the great state of Texas two feet deep. Then we take you, and we are going to put you in the center of Texas, which is where? It is in the best city in the state of Texas, Abilene, Texas. Come on, right? 
all the great reasons. We put you right there. We put a blindfold on you. And we say, you can take as long as you want. You can walk any direction you want to go, as far as you want to go. But sometime you've got to pick up one silver dollar. The odds of you picking up the silver dollar that we put the Sharpie mark on. One times 10 to the 17th power. And that's the odds of Jesus fulfilling eight, not 50, eight messianic prophecies. Listen to me. Only God could orchestrate everything that was orchestrated in Jesus Christ. That's why the scripture says all the promises of God have their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. We can know it is true. Everything written because of Jesus. It is why scripture shouts, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Somebody say profitable. How many of you want profit in your life? Hands up. See, we all want profit. Listen to me. You will not get profit in 280 characters on Twitter. You're not going to get profit on one-minute videos on TikTok. I'm all for these things. The 30-second commercials that they are paying 25 million, 250, I don't know how much a commercial is or the Super Bowl is right now. That they're paying all that money for for 30 seconds. You're not going to get profit from that. You got to go deep. You got to be willing to think and to chew and to meditate. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. It'll teach you. It'll rebuke you. It will correct you. It will train you for righteousness so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for everything God has for our lives. Hear me. The scripture can be trusted, and we've only scratched the surface. We haven't talked about archaeology. And some of you say, you're not going to talk about archaeology, are you? You're going to have to do that on your own. But you can look. Do you know archaeology has confirmed the historicity of the Bible? Like it used to be said before the 1960s, that the Bible couldn't be trusted because there was a main character in the Bible, a Roman governor by the name of Pilate. You heard who Pilate is? There was no external historical evidence of Pilate outside the Bible. And they said, well, there's no other corroborating evidence for Pilate. He doesn't exist. It was made up. And then all of a sudden, in the 1960s, in Caesarea of Israel, they were digging out the ruins, and they found a cornerstone of something that said Pontius Pilate, dedicated to Pontius Pilate, and they put the date he existed in. Boom. Confirmed. And that's happened again and again. I could go to historical texts. The Bible is the most historically reliable book of antiquity a thousand times over from the next closest. We have a thousand times more manuscripts of the Old and New Testament. I'm just telling you, you can trust it. I know that there are some of you saying, man, I have problems with just some of the teachings of the Bible. I get it, but sometimes we just misunderstand the teachings of the Bible because we don't go deep enough. Like one of the most common issues is, I just can't trust the Bible because it condones slavery. I'm not just talking about the Old Testament. I'm talking about Jesus, after Jesus, and in the New Testament. See, when we read in the New Testament the word slavery, we automatically think of 1700s and 1800s Europe. And America. We think of people being kidnapped from another continent, being brought over by force, not of their own will, sold as property. Listen to me. That is not first century Roman Empire slavery. In the first century Roman Empire, a slave was never kidnapped and made a slave outside their own will. They actually sold themselves into slavery. It was indentured servanthood. You said, how in the world could that happen? you got to understand and go a little deeper because there were people in such low economic situations that they discovered they could sell themselves as an indentured servant. As indentured servants, they would actually make more money to a point that they could eventually buy themselves out of slavery, be financially ahead, and set their family on a course that they're going to be better off in the days to come. Now, Paul still says in the New Testament, it's better if you don't do that. But that's why he talks about slavery the way he talks about slavery. 
It actually could better their life. One scholar says, very few slaves were not slaves, very few slaves were slaves for life. Most could be reasonably hoped to be manumitted. Come on, let's be honest. How many of you have ever heard the word manumitted? Yeah, we live in Abilene. We don't use that. You can look that up, right? It means to be set free because they buy their way out. They could do that within 10 or 15 years or by their late 30s at the latest. The scripture actually condemns what we call slavery. 1 Timothy 1.10, when you kidnap and you sell somebody as property, and it was because there were followers of Jesus who saw rightly what the Scripture taught, that they started standing against slavery. It was believers like William Wilberforce in Britain. It was leaders of the abolition movement here who were all followers of Jesus that ended the ferocity of what is slavery today. Guys, I'm just telling you, if you listen to me, there's a lot of reasons you can trust the Bible. You cannot just trust its historicity, but the revelation of what it gives to you and I is what brings hope and life and peace. It is why Jesus said, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and what? Puts them into practice. is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. So right now, going on in the brain of everyone who grew up in church is a kid's song. And we're all pounding our rocks. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man, see, you're doing it. In fact, it's going to go into your brain. And during the Super Bowl, you're going to be singing, the wise man built his house on the rock. But the song doesn't say these words. It puts them into practice. It's one thing to hear the Word of God. It's another thing to put them into practice. You know what it means to put the Word of God into practice? You think like the Word. I get into the Word, and where my thoughts contradict the Word, I reject my normal thoughts, and I embrace those. Is that not what we talked about in Flip the Script in the fall? We replace lies with truth. Where is truth? Truth's in the Scripture. How do I know it's true? Because we went deep. We went deep. Hear me. If you have questions, even beyond, I've given you all sorts of resources. You can dive into this really deep, and you're going to find there is a solidity to the Word of God that's not enough just to give you reason to come to church. You can bank your life on it. You can bank your eternity on it. But we got to be those who hear and put into practice. We actually think and do what the Scripture teaches. And when that happens, you know the result? The rain came down. The stream ro streams rose. The winds blew and beat against that house. A pandemic happened. That which the movies used to tell us could happen, and we thought, oh, I could be scared for a little while in the movie, and everything got all great, but I don't have to worry about it because it can never happen. It happened. And now we wonder what life's going to be like in the future. We wonder what life's going to be like for our kids. And we wonder what life's going to be like for our grandkids. You want me to tell you what it's going to be like? You're going to have lives that do not fall because we are going to raise them up to know deeply the Word of God. And when they build their lives in the Word of God, no matter what would come against them, no matter what happens in the days to come, they are going to be a people of joy and peace and righteousness in the Holy Ghost because that is who we are made to be. Because we are a people who do not condition our lives by the circumstances. We build our lives on the rock. We know it is solid and we build our lives there. And man, the winds blow, the streams rise, 
the rain comes down, but that house stands firm because it has foundation on the rock. So let's do this. Let's just bow our heads where we're online, North Campus, South Campus. We've got to take a minute here. Just a minute. We're going to get out of here. What is God wanting to highlight to you? See, here's what I know. You are present. North Campus, South Campus. If you're online, I know you hunger for this. Because one of the hardest ways to stay, in it, stay with attention is online. I know you hunger for some level to have a solid foundation. I know it. Just ask God for grace to go deep. Where you have questions, utilize those questions to go find answers. Be willing to realize that you're not going to be able to get all the answers in a two and a half minute YouTube video. There are some things that are not quick and surface level, but if we would dare go deep, I've given you some resources on your note, just be willing to go deep. To know the evidence for the resurrection, to know the evidence for the word of God, it exists. But we gotta be willing people who think, to have our minds transformed. And just tell God, I want a solid foundation. I want a solid foundation. I want to go deeper than surface level. How many of us want grace to put the word of God into practice, to so believe it's God's word that we don't just nod our head in affirmation in church, but we want to think like it. We want to act like it. Everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and puts them into practice is the wise man, is the wise woman who built their house on the rock. And if you say to God, God, I want to be wiser than I've ever been. I want to be a man. I want to be a woman who puts into practice your word more than I ever have. Give me courage to do it. Give me grace to do it. Help me do it more than I ever have. If you would, with integrity, say that to God. Put your hand up right now and say, God, I want my house built more on the rock of Jesus than it's ever been. Put them up. Come on. Realize you got to go deep. So, Father, you see this. We say thank you for your word. We thank, thank you for your heart. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us faith, Father, courage, soundness of mind to know we can do nothing better than build our house on your rock. Where our lives are awry of your ways, Father, show us and use your God-breathed scripture to correct us and to rebuke us. Train us for the things that you designed us for in this life to make a difference. Teach us your ways that lead to abundant life. We love you. We thank you for your word, oh God. Most of all, we thank you for its revelation of who Jesus is. He is our hope and our life. And we say we belong to you, oh Jesus. More than ever, we want to follow you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.